Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Corn Fed Coaching. This week on the pod, we have Matt Carver, who is an Urbandale native, uh, moved around a little bit and came back. He'll tell you all about it. Uh, he started his own club on the Iowa soccer scene, kind of talks us through the process uh, and some obstacles and reasons why he decided to do that. Um, it was a really good chat, uh, and we thank him again for coming on. Thank you to our supporters for uh, listening, subscribing, commenting. Um, Jack's going to talk to us a little bit about the comments section. Yes. Uh, if you guys have questions, do not be afraid to ask comment, uh, ask questions. If you do have a question and you'd like to do it anonymously, anonymously. Jesus. Uh, just DM us. Just shoot us a DM. And, uh, Direct and message. If you have our text, uh, if you have our cell phone numbers, just use a text as well. Thanks for everyone um, also buying merchandise. Bucket hats are flying off the shelf. Are they? Yeah. Are the, is the is my favorite one up yet? The favorite shirt will be coming. Oh this. my god! <laughs> I'm a busy man. I'm a busy He's man. a busy man. I'm a busy He's man. a busy man. It will be up. Favorite shirts are coming soon. Very soon. Uh, I wore. This I've wore. I've wore them a good amount, and they've gotten a good chuckle and good response. Um, yeah, so they'll be up and looking to diversify some exciting things coming up, uh, some exciting guests. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, stay tuned. Keep supporting. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Let's kick off the pod. another episode of your favorite soccer podcast in Iowa, Corn Fed Coaching. Today on the pod, we have the Director of Coaching and Executive Director of Jayhawk Soccer Club out in Urbandale, Iowa, Mr. Matt Carver. Thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, uh, let's just jump right in like we usually do. Uh, Matt, if you want to give us uh, your background, um, how you grew up, how you got involved with the game, uh, kind of your journey to uh, where you're at now within the within the Iowa landscape of soccer. Sure. So I started uh, playing real early on at Urban Oak Club. I started playing at Urban Oak Club as a recreational player back in, oh, it must have been around 1980. So quite a while ago. I so think there was soccer. There, there was, was soccer, soccer. <laughs> yeah, just barely. But there, there was soccer. It wasn't nearly as developed. But no, I... Yeah, I think the Urbandale Club started around 76, 77. I started playing around 80. Uh, played recreationally. And then in high school at that time, they did a varsity team. So now, it wasn't a state-sanctioned sport. Okay. But pretty much every high school that I can think of in Des Moines had a high school varsity team. Uh, they were uh, co-ed teams. So at that time, they didn't yet have a separate girls team, separate boys teams, or co-ed teams. You know, we had... JV varsity teams, uh, played through high school, played varsity soccer for four years. Uh, then after that, in college, I went to the University of Notre Dame in ROTC, through Army ROTC. You know, just played some intramural soccer there. And uh, then it got stationed in Germany, in Hohenfels, Germany, and had an opportunity while I was stationed there for three and a half years to play on a men's team in, in Germany. So if you want to call it a Sunday league team or, yeah. you know, a local team, mm-hmm. but got to see that culture in Germany. 
And that was a, an extremely formative experience, I would say, for me as a, not only as a player, but then later as a coach, just seeing the, the system that they had there, seeing the, the passion that they had, uh, the organization, attention to detail, just seeing a, what I'd say is a higher level of play. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the comment I'd make on that is I had the privilege in high school to play with a player by the name of Aaron Leventhal, who ended up playing on the first menace team, played second, played four years at Drake. Professionally uh, with Minnesota Thunder, mm. what they were called at the time. So outstanding player, and yet here on this team I was on in, in Germany, had a player on the team who was a little bit later in his career. He had played up to maybe fourth division, I would say, fourth, maybe fifth division in Germany. And then later he decided to come back, sort of play for his local village team, is what it was. And technically, he was a better player. Yeah. And so that, for me, was just something to see. I just had never seen it a player who was that technical before and uh, someone who was truly both footed. I, to this day, couldn't tell you which foot was his strong leg. I don't know if he has a strong leg. And I was <laughs> playing with him for over three years. So, you know, had that opportunity to go play in those Sunday games. You know, the people from the village had come, watch the game, drink beer, eat a brat, yell at the refs, you know, <laughs> yell at their own team, yell at the opposing team. And, you know, just see that, again, that, that culture there. And then after that opportunity, uh, then we moved back. My wife and I moved back to, to Iowa, uh, went to law school, and then we ended up back in our, my hometown of Urbandale and then got involved with the uh, Urbandale Soccer Club as a coach. We have four kids. So I was coaching there uh, for a number of years. I was on the board there a couple of times. I had a, a deployment in between those times. Uh, uh, or I was on the board for, let's see, I think in 2002 and three or so, then I got deployed, came back, joined the board there again uh, a little bit later, maybe 2007 or so, and was on the board there, I think, until 2009. And then at, at, at that point, uh, then again, coaching along at, at the Urbandale Soccer Club, and then we had some, you know, I think it's fair to say some differences of opinion then on you know, direction, perhaps what we should be doing, what we should be permitting. Uh, I wanted at the time to continue to coach my oldest two daughters at, you, know, you want to call it select level, mm. at this background with, again, playing, coaching, saying, hey, we're going to have more and more parents like me coming along who have played. And uh, at that time, they, they adopted a policy which prevented coach uh, parents to include me from coaching their own children at that level uh, and so that, that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back and we decided along with some other parents to, to form the Jayhawk Soccer Club uh, and so that would have been in 2010-11 is when the club was formed with two teams, two girls teams and we started out. Then there was about a five-year period where we weren't able to get affiliated with Iowa Soccer so that was a real struggle. That was something, frankly, uh, just wanting to join a state association. They wouldn't permit that. We ended up going to arbitration on that with the Soccer Federation and won that decision. So they were required to affiliate us. And then I will say, and I want a little shout out to Soccer now. 
won that decision. You know, they've been very good to us and have very, you know, people like Craig Winger and Ross Moffat and others, you know, I think are doing a great job there. Uh, so we've appreciated that. But anyway, uh, and so then we we're able to participate in state league and with the recreational leagues at that point. So that sort of brings us up to, I guess, where we are in clubs around now for about eight years. But that's, that's, that's the background. All right. Uh, very good. That is extensive. Awesome. Um, so how did kind of your perception of when you were growing up uh, in Germany, uh, or not in Germany, growing up, but growing up in Urbandale, uh, and, you know, kind of the maybe less structured environment that was there, change your perspective? Uh, you briefly talked about it, uh, as opposed to when you went to Germany and how you kind of came back and implemented maybe what you saw there more and try to maybe change the landscape even in Urbandale from when you grew up there. Right. Yeah, I'd say that, uh, you know, a couple of big differences. One, when I was playing uh, through high school anyway, it just we had quite a few, and I probably throw myself in this category, that even though I played as a child and up through high school, you know, I was a, a very good athlete who was playing soccer. But I, I wasn't necessarily technically yeah. the soccer player that looking back that I probably would have liked to have been. Sure. And so that that's just that seeing that significant that and that's why I brought up the example of having a player on the team who again who was here in this we were probably in like eighth division, you know, an eighth division team, he's playing maybe again he played up to his fourth fifth, to be that technical he I would say his technical ability was probably he probably could have played professionally. He just wasn't quite he wasn't quite athletic enough. You know, mm-hmm. he was sort of that threshold athleticism you need. But seeing that not only with him, but then with others, and then also just the differences. I know you guys in in past pods have talked about this, just in the culture in other countries, and just experiencing that culture where it's just, it's so much more important there as as a part of their life, as part of their their weekend life, as part of their, their life during the week, what they talk about, what the kids are doing, you know, outside of organized practice. And so I'd say that was probably the big difference as far as lesson learned. It's just, again, the, the technical side, the organization, and the, the culture were probably the big differences. Mm-hmm. Really was able to grow from, from that experience. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting that you say that because when I, as I was growing up too, whenever I would, when I was here, I would always go back home twice a year or whatever. And during the Christmas time, I was able to play Sunday League, as, we call, as you would call it too. And even and my Sunday league around where I am is probably like this 15th, 16th year. <laughs> <laughs> but the organization is, is there's always three officials. The, everyone's always on time. And the, the passion is still there. And even if, and you can see that everyone's still pretty technical. And it's, it's just, a, you're right, the culture is so much different. And even if, the other team, you see the other team and two, two of the players are having cigarettes at halftime. The passion is still there and they're still technical. <laughs> Maybe they could have been a little bit better with all of but yeah, I see what you Fitness mean. level, man. Yeah. Breathing a little it's harder in the second half. It's, it's funny you mentioned that with the cigarettes. Because this is the 90s too, right? So oh, yeah. more of that. But these guys would be smoking. About half of them would yeah. be smoking right up to the training field. Oh, yeah. And then they put the cigarette out. And then they go and they train. I'm like, how are they, how are they doing <laughs> this? You know? But uh, anyway, yeah. But it, it was definitely different seeing that. Just seeing, you know. I mean, here we were. This is a 
a village team, really. They had a first team and a second team. You had, it was maybe a small clubhouse, but we had a clubhouse with their locker rooms and all that. And this is just pretty much every, every town or city. And if you yeah. started getting the cities, well, then they'd have multiple clubs. Yeah. And I'm talking about cities that if you had 15,000 people, you probably had two clubs, even at 15,000. And so that just was completely, that was a big eye-opener for me. I mean, I knew it was a, a huge uh, soccer country or football or whatever you want to call it, but uh, that, was, that was just a tremendous eye-opener for me. Yeah. Uh, so thinking about that, so when you, uh, you know, decided to start Jayhawk, did you try to implement some of the things that you took away from Germany into kind of the, the club culture? Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and we'd love to see you know even more of that. Um, right now, as a matter of fact, so we have a couple of fields uh, right now. We'd love, we'd love to have more fields, by the way, City of Urbanville, but we have a couple of fields. <laughs> and one of them is right uh, next to the, the police department there in Walker Johnson Park. And it's sort of a low-lying area, and there's a hill on the side. And it, you know, it reminded me, actually, of, of some of the, the fields that we might play on in different locations there. And so the settings there, so you start having visions of what it potentially could, could become if you got the culture to buy into that. But, you know, I think that's, we're a little ways from that. You know, again, there it is, it's about, and now it's, now it's changing some as you have more women's teams, mm. but there it was really, the focus was the men's team. Yeah. The focus was the men's, frankly, the first team, second team would train with them, but that's where the focus is sort of built up to that, whereas here... Of course, most of our clubs are youth clubs, so yeah. you don't have that direct connection with that men's team. But yeah, do I sort of look into the future and would, would I love to see that and that, that path so that continues on into adult play? Yes, that'd be great. And then also the part about you know the organization, the you know the, the Germans certainly known for the making the extra pass, mm -hmm. uh, being unselfish with their play. Uh, being at the same time the physical with the play, uh, which is great, so that aggressiveness is there, but you have the technical side, and you're getting me watch. You know, of course, they didn't do so well in the last World Cup, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, typically though, if you watch the the. the after them. Not that that's unique to Germany. But I think that that's one thing that's certainly a, a strength of theirs is being so disciplined with that, yeah. knowing when to make that smart play. So, yeah, we're, we're trying to implement that more and more, but we need to you know, sort of build the fundamentals first. So did, did you notice that kind of style of play, the, the well-engineered, the organization, the, the backboard, everyone doing this, their specific jobs? That's a big key thing for me when I coach as well. Everyone has to do their specific jobs, and that's what Germany do do well. Mm -hmm. Did you notice that from all the way down, even at that that tier, that kind of Sunday league that you were playing, that those players were still playing that kind of culture? No, I, I would say absolutely. I mean, that was something. Now, again, you're, there's a big drop off in technical ability across the entire team, or athleticism across the entire team. But as far as that organized piece of what they were trying to do you would see that pretty much across the board. Mm -hmm. So that's something that you would still see. I mean, I, I can remember one I can remember one game at halftime, so a lot of the guys on the team didn't speak English. There were some, but 
And I didn't speak much German, and that's one of the great things about the game is you sort of play the game, you know. Yeah. So you don't necessarily it's a universal language. Yeah. But uh, I recall one halftime, we're in a locker room, and, and the guy who had sort of served as training, he came over to me, and, and I played uh, left defender, Lengsferteidiger is what they called it, uh, on the team. And, and he came and he said, Mott, you must stay closer to your mind. You know, I, wasn't, I wasn't being quite as organized as I think they wanted me to be. And uh, you didn't have as much overlapping play in the 90s yeah. as, you, as you see now. So anyway, but yeah, so I'd say that you did see that level of organization. That's just, that's part of their, their football culture there. And that's coming from the top. That's kind of, yes, I'd say that's coming from the and it's all tied. So yeah. they're they have cups, you know, yeah. uh, they have cups there. I can't recall the name of the cup, but we play in a cup where there's that potential, and occasionally there might be that fourth division team that get that opportunity to play a first division professional team. But it all starts from the bottom. So every club team, every first team anyway, had an opportunity to play in that. So it's it's all tied together in their system. Hmm. So was. Was the, again, going back to kind of the culture and the way, you know, all of Europe basically is set up with, you know, different towns uh, and, and, you know, was that also, um, you know, after kind of what happened with Urbandale, was that also some of the... was something that I was able to see their youth system there, at least at some level. And so I saw the difference where, you know what, those local, those local coaches were volunteer parent coaches. Mm. And that was a system. Now, the big difference, of course, is they had a much more developed scouting system there in their country, where even at that time, and I'm sure it's improved many fold since then, but they... So they had the scouting so that they'd identify players. And so if a player's good enough, then they'd identify him. But that village, if they're an eight, nine special player, a scout would identify him or they'd find out about them. They might be asked to go to a larger club. But most of the clubs, as, as you both probably know, a vast majority of the clubs were volunteer coach clubs. I mean, that's just the way that it was. That's the way that it still is. And then if that player was asked to go and play so if that family is approached and that player is asked to go to another club it was seen as sort of an honor yeah you know so if you had a player from your village club a youth player who was asked to go so we were not too far from Regensburg or Nuremberg mm -hmm. uh, so if maybe a bigger club uh, let's say Jan Regensburg which isn't a huge club in Germany but a bigger club you know a professional club yeah. if, if a player from our club were asked a youth player to go and be on their youth squad. I mean, that was that was a big honor. I mean, that was something that was talked about, and it wasn't seen as a loss. You know, it wasn't seen as a loss of, oh, well, we're losing our best player. It was seen as, hey, aren't we proud that this player was asked to go and, and, and play for them? And so that's something that I think that I learned from that, and I'd love to see more of that here, because I at times here, I think we get into sort of the it's almost like a zero-sum game is the way that it's approached. So in a, in a zero-sum game, well, if one side gains something, that means someone else loses. Yeah. And that's not how youth 
soccer, football, whatever you want to call it, it's not how it should be approached. I think it's possible that we can all win when we have, so if that player has success, moves on somewhere else, that's not a negative, we lost him again. That's a positive because that means we're doing something right and also now that player's going to be put in a better setting to further develop. I like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Okay, so let's talk about the style of play. So we talked about the, the Germany and being aggressive, fast, organized. Let's talk about, and you did say you were kind of trying to implement something like that. We talked about, we talked about before about you guys kind of possession-based and stuff like that. We're trying. <laughs> We're trying. Always easier said We're than done. We're trying. possession-based. Yeah, I've, watched, I've watched a couple of games and played against Jayhawk, and I can, I can kind of see that, and <laughs> playing out of the back and things yeah, like that. Yeah, right, right. Um, what do you think the problem right now is with the style of play for the U.S.? Yeah, so I, I would say that, and this probably isn't going to be shocked to anyone listening here, but in the U.S. for, for too many years, and I think... It's improving, but it's it, it's still an issue. Is that we're we're just too direct. You know, we rely so much on that athleticism big, and strong. the big, fast, strong. And let's and I've heard this again on some of your other pods, but let's put them up in front and let's go by players and just play really direct. And you know what? That that leads to positive results when players are younger or for teams perhaps up to a point. But then you also both know that if, if that's how you're going to continue to play, then it stops. Yeah. You know, that success stops because others catch up. Others, let's say they're more technical, if they are playing what I believe is the right way, if they are more organized, where they're just, you're not going to have that success any longer. But it, it seems to be something that we repeat generation after generation in the United States of just going for that big, fast athlete. Not, not there's anything wrong with having big, fast athletes. That's great. But not, not coaching them in a way where they're really developing that technical skill. And so we're, we're challenging them that, you know what, that's, I, know that, I know you can run by this defender at this level every game. So I'm sure we have some players, let's say, around Des Moines, that on their 14U team or whatever it is, that... Pretty much every game, if they wanted to, they could just run by defenders because of their speed and their physicality. But then what's that going to do for them later if they haven't developed on the technical side? And and that's where, again, this real direct play and this lack of possession. I mean, you look at the – and I think we see it all the way through the national team. I mean, look at our last game against Mexico. I mean, it was harsh. It was hard. I mean, it was – it was hard, and, I, and, and again, these are some. These are some. Obviously, they're all professional yeah. players. Yeah. You know, they're all professional players. So I'm not trying to. They're all ten times better than I ever hoped to be. But you, you, they just don't have that comfort with the first touch, or there aren't enough of them. Yeah. And that technical. I mean, how many how many number nines have we really produced in the United States? Or how many eights have we? Re- I mean, really, yeah. have we really for like elite eights, elite nines? I would just say elite player. Oh well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, probably fair enough. But many, yeah. yeah, but but I just what? How many? I mean, one like, Tim Howard, yeah. maybe? Like, yeah, maybe. I mean, not that many. Elite, elite, yeah, like yeah. Maybe. And, Fulham. <laughs> and then you look at Clint, right? But you look at Clint Dempsey, and well, where did he come from? You know, I mean, he came from. Thank goodness that he had some families that helped to sort of subsidize him through the pay-for-play system. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, 
we might never have heard of Clint Dempsey. Yeah. And then, you know, and I would say with Clint, as he would, Clint Dempsey is someone who also he had that heart and that fight in sure. him. Absolutely. And I, I'm not sure how many of the players we have right now. I think sometimes players in the United States, whether it's the youth level or moving all the way up, they think that they're better than they are. Oh, yeah. You know, and so anyway, so those are some of the challenges I see. But I just, again, just on that technical, that first touch, that finishing, we don't have clinical finishers in the United States. Yeah. We don't, but there's no reason why we can't. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would say I agree with a lot of what you just said. Um, even the, the, the one thing that's to, is even, uh, you know, like you mentioned, like the uh, there might be a couple kids, especially at the younger ages in Iowa, that can kind of run by people. Um, and, then, and the, you know, how does that affect them when they're older and then everyone kind of gets more athletic? Um, I mean, we even see it. You mentioned, uh, you know, before we started the podcast uh, about, you know, maybe taking some teams to hit down in Kansas City at the end of the season. Uh, and what I find is, you know, yeah, you play maybe the state league and then that, that kid is running by, running by people, running by people. And then you go play Kansas City even, which is, what, two and a half, three hours away. And then he realize, he or she realizes that, you know, oh, wow, wait, down here there's three, four, five kids faster than me? What, what do I do? And they run out of ideas and they don't have, you know, they don't have, like you said, the technical ability to kind of solve problems or, you know, uh, other uh, answers to the problems that are presented. Right. Uh, and so I just, yeah, I think that's a, a huge thing that needs to be addressed. And then two, I don't know if we talked about it. I just got back from a, a coaching course down in Kansas City, ironically. But um, when we talked about style of play. And, you know, they put up the Germans and kind of how what that embodies the German style of play and much like what you mentioned earlier. And then Spanish, obviously, they have, you know, a very, very distinct style of play. And they said, they posed the question, they said, what is the U.S.'s style of play? And that no one, and this is instructors, they were like, I don't know. I don't know. And so I think that's a huge thing of, you know, if your at least country represents something, and it, like you said, it kind of follows down. It, Germany, obviously, very distinct style trickles all the way down to, you know, the Sunday league teams. And it's like here we kind of have this, you know, that's America in general, a melting pot of different cultures and different styles. But, you know, is it just the hardworking run really fast all the time? Is that, can that even be a style of play or is that a characteristic, you know? I think, uh, who is his grill? What is his name? Bill Berhalter? Berhalter. You're an American now, Jack. You got to know these things. Berhalter, yes. Greg Berhalter. Burhalter. So, me and Greg go what Greg, <laughs> I saw a, um, he had a press conference. Yeah. And they were saying that was, uh, they weren't going forward enough and they were kind of playing out of the back and they got caught playing out of the back, didn't they? Yes. And he said that he was more impressed with yeah. the game. Yeah, I saw this. Against Mexico in that the one second in the time. Gold Cup, the second yeah. time, because yeah. he was implementing on what they wanted to do, what he was trying to implement his culture. I don't know if you know, but he coached. So when he, after he finished playing, yeah. he went to coach in Sweden yeah. at Hammarby, yeah. and he actually got fired from there for lack of attacking play. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, why so is he coaching things. in the United States? Well, the thing is, Mexico's coach Tata, like he coached at Atlanta. Like <laughs> we should have gotten. I don't know why you don't go after. The guy that like had the most distinct, like impressive style of play in the MLS, but uh, I think that's a whole tangent. <laughs> I think there's a, the U.S. soccer uh, 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think but it has to be distinguished before any club like the grassroots even decides what they want to do. Yeah, because what's the whole point? Anytime you're in England, and you can ask any European that's in any, we're talking about Germany, we're talking about England, when you're a kid and you're playing, you're watching the English national team, that's your goal. You yeah. want to play for the English yeah. team. You want to play, you want to wear that shirt. So, if you don't know what the US are trying to do, then you can't really implement that into your grassroots. Yeah. So then how are you going to drive that kid to want to play for that country? Yeah. And I think that's honestly one of the, not to tangent again into the coaching course, but is like, they, they, they have a methodology, and they're definitely – they've revamped it. They brought in some outside people to revamp the methodology, but they, they didn't talk anything about style of play. So it's like this methodology, what's the end goal of this methodology? Mm-hmm. Wasn't necessarily clear, I would say. Maybe only the C, so maybe that's a B&A course thing. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, just – just I, and I think with that is, are you, again, are you back technically, are you developing the players to be able to play that style of play? So yeah. whatever that is, I mean, you can't just all of a sudden adopt, I mean, you can try to adopt the style, that's great, sure. but you have to have the players there to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And and again, back to the men's national, I, I, national team, I think we see some of that, where some of those players are maybe really good, maybe they're playing a six, but they're professional club, and now they're being forced to play an eight, well, they're not really an eight, yeah. you know? And so, uh, you know, what are we doing to technically develop a large enough pool of players? And that's where, again, back to drawing it, bringing it back to increasing that pool of players and, you know, some of my concerns I've had regarding cost of play for youth is, and we've, we've seen some, by the way, some improvement here in the Des Moines area on this, I think, with some other clubs popping up. You know, Jaime Leva, really excited about what he's doing with United yeah, Football Academy. One of our friends, some other, yeah, yeah. So I mean, and others, you know, there are a number of other uh, clubs I think are doing more of this. Where hey, let's let's build that pool of youth players, and then hopefully, as coaches and clubs, we can talk about this. And certainly, as I've had talks with, uh, you know, with Ross Moffat and. I had some talks with Gareth as well. I mean, I, I see what their vision is, too, as a state and what they're hoping to do. But, all right, now let's make sure we're getting together as clubs and as directors and coaches and being a little bit more disciplined with, are, are we carrying this out down to the club level? Or are we succumbing to, well, we're more concerned about keeping parents happy, so we better play this way so we have some more wins. Mm. Uh, so anyway, be, I'd enjoy having more of those conversations. I know, again, they're trying to have some of those at the state, you guys, but this pod has been a great, uh, has provided a great opportunity to have more of these discussions. But we need to build a pool up and then really focus on technical development of players and not, again, not being so sort of territorial. So Yeah, so let's dive into that a little bit more. So... Um, in terms of building the pool, how do you think we can go about that? So, so again, people you know have come on, like you said, and uh, you know talked about these things. So, in your opinion, what are some ways we can go about maybe building that pool up so we have you know more kids to work with to provide you know those technical um, you know development ages too? 
Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest or the, the way to build it or the fastest way to build it, in my opinion, is lowering the cost. It's yeah. figuring out some way to lower the cost. And so uh, whether that's having more sponsorship, I mm. mean, it, it, it obviously doesn't help that we currently don't, although we're looking forward to I think we may have a professional team before too long here yeah. in Hawaii, but, you know, we're hearing some things about that. But, you know, that would certainly help to have a connection there. But just finding ways to lower the cost, whether that's through, all right, knowing that we do have more. I mean, the reality is we have more parents now who have played. Now, that doesn't mean they're automatically going to be great coaches. You both know that. There are a lot of really good players that aren't good coaches. And there's, and there's some great coaches who aren't necessarily good players. So, sure. you know, but we do have this pool out there. So how can we continue to tap into this up, you know, this, this group of parents and other young people who are coming up and uh, tap into the background knowledge they have so that hopefully we can find a way to lower that cost so there aren't as many expenses there so it's less expenses for less less expensive for families to join so it doesn't it's not cost prohibitive because you know at times you'll see some of that where you just some families just make the decision to stop playing soccer their child will stop playing just because it's too expensive right so um, anyway, so that, that would be a way that I think it would help greatly. And then just the, whatever partnering we can continue to do between the clubs. Uh, I think there are a lot of sort of bureaucratic things that we have in U.S. soccer. Now, this is sort of more of a national issue mm -hmm. where it's, it's just more where, you know what, let's focus on kids playing the game. Yeah. Okay. And we get, to, I think someone brought up about the, player cards or something like that. I don't know if it's one of you guys, but, you know, just things like, like, listen, I understand that, you know, we don't want, but realistically, how many coaches are intentionally bringing <laughs> some other kid in, yeah. you know what yeah. I mean, yeah. to run up the Ridiculous. score in an 11U game or whatever, right? And so, I mean, that's just a little example, but we get caught, when I hear kids not playing, who is in there? I think, I think it's maybe one of your guests in the pod said it's someone who... Was had to sit out most of a regional game because they didn't. Yeah, that was, it was one of my players. Yeah, one of your players. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, the refs the they the, lost the, the he lost, lost the player card. card. And it just, I just don't see that happening. Else, you know, when we're talking about youth soccer, and so there are a lot of those things too. Where a lot of there's, uh, uh, you know, some of the sort of regulatory things that I think we have in place. Where let's really take a look at this and. Uh, let's take a look at how could we streamline things so we're not we're not allowing for regulations and things like that that really don't have too much to do with safety, getting away of kids playing the game. Mm. So what's um, is, it, is that one of the reasons that you you kind of went away and created Jayhawk just because of the pay to play thing? So it is yeah, it's not it's not completely free for Jayhawk. No, that's right. Yeah, so that's right. Yeah, it's sure. Just, it's just a little. A little a lot less, a little bit less. Yeah, so I'd say, yeah, I mean, I'm happy with public information or whatever. So, like, for instance, so our, and we're all volunteers. So our okay. club, our coaches are all volunteer coaches. Uh, but, for instance, like our select program, it's for the year, it's $525 is what it is, which pretty much is what we figured out is what covers our state league costs, our tournaments, our paying the upkeep on the field, and all those other things that go along with having a having a soccer club. And so, uh, you know, obviously that's a lot less expensive. 
Um, so it, it, it'd be nice, again, whether it's through sponsorship or otherwise, again, it'd be nice to see more of those costs coming down with other clubs. And so it just opens up opportunities. Because I, you know, and I, I'm aware clubs will say, well, they have scholarships. And I know, that, yeah, they do. But I've seen some of the scholarship applications. And some of those applications ask extremely personal questions and are quite, so, you know, let's maybe, maybe clubs taking a look at that. I mean, our scholarship program is you write scholarship. Now, if we see someone who's, and this hasn't, we haven't seen really abuse on this, but if, if someone were to be going on, you know, long vacations and things like that, out of, you know, whatever, fly into Europe sure. and then they're coming back writing scholarship, yeah, we're going to ask questions. <laughs> yeah. But, but we have a streamlined process for that. So, yeah, I'd certainly encourage clubs, if they, if they are sort of paid for play, to look at that. What can you do to streamline that so that we can open opportunities for more kids in our community to play the game in an organized fashion? Because I know that, you know, there are a lot of great coaches out there. I mean, I've never, even from when we started Jayhawk, I didn't question that. I mean, there are a lot of very good coaches out there. So... What can we do to get those kids in front of those, you know, outstanding coaches so they can develop? And then as those players develop, what can we do to work together so we get the very best players from those clubs together in the Des Moines area? Because that's something hopefully we get to eventually is just, you know, what has Des Moines produced? I mean, really, I, you know, we have not done a good job. I think if someone takes a frank look at our system, uh, and while I would say the system is probably a national issue, not just a Des Moines-specific issue, but you look at the size of the city of Des Moines and what we've produced, and I think it's you, you really uh, yeah, it's really difficult to make an argument that what we're doing is is really truly succeeding in developing elite players. When what I think Des Moines had one MLS player ever. Uh, to my knowledge, Waukee, Matt yeah. Nickel. Yeah, right. I mean, and, yeah, great. And I mean, outstanding, you know, outstanding player, right? But I mean, yeah. one player. And yeah. so, for the size of our city, I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And there needs to be some adjustment because we're not doing what we need to do to, to develop that elite player. So, as far as paying for play. Mm -hmm. Should the price increase based on the coach? So, talk about me and John being full-time coaches. Sure. Talking about Jayhawk having volunteer coaches. Let's put, let's do a, a day in the life of me and John, mm -hmm. sending 15, 20 emails, developing lesson plans, developing a curriculum for the whole entire boys' side, traveling, practicing five days a week, mm -hmm. going from 5.15 to 9.45. Do you think the the price of that should re kind of reflect a, a volunteer coach. Sure. And not so, a volunteer coach. Yeah. I'm better than a volunteer coach because yeah. I, I might not be. I, yeah, no, no, I hear you. No, I, and, and, that, and that's, a, that's a fair question. And so on that, as far as whether or not uh, they should or that there's some value there or whatever, then, you know, I'd say, well, sure, a lot of families might find there to be value there and they decide to spend mm -hmm. money and go in that direction. Now, with that... You know, I have, so another issue that sort of shoots off of that is where I've, I have some issue is that, like, for instance, in our situation, we're having a difficult time getting public field use. Mm. And so, yet we have a pay-for-play club who gets primary use of our public fields in Urbandale, 
And yet here we are, and we're just trying to get more kids playing, trying to hopefully get them to play the right way. And so we're not getting access to those public fields. And, and where I'm going with that is, this is the United States. So if, there, if there's a market for that, then families should have every right, if they wish, to pay for that. And so if they see that value there, which they very well may see, and that's something that over the years, I've sort of put that out to some other clubs. Hey, you know what? If you're able to show that and what value you bring those families or just whatever, whatever benefit that they get from that, I'm well aware that there are many families have very positive experiences with a lot of these different pay-for-play clubs. You know, that's great. You know, that, that, that's fine. Uh, having said that, I don't want my tax dollars subsidizing that when we have a lack of field space. And, you know, hopefully, I don't know if that's fair count or not, I, I think it's, it, it's fair. But then again, then the, the point I shared earlier about what, let's, let's talk about that access to those players. So I just challenge those clubs, hey, you're doing it, promote what you're doing well, if family's willing to pay it, great, but I challenge them to really look at those scholarships. What can they do to, to make that a lot easier, to open that up? And maybe some of them are doing it, and I, you know, there might be some of them are doing that, and I'm not aware of it. But anyway, these are just some of my reflections on it. No, yeah. But I think the market, I mean, we're in the United States, so God bless someone if they, whether it's soccer or any other sport, you start something up and you, you charge something. You guys obviously have expertise, or other coaches have expertise. Someone wants to pay it. This is the United States of America, <laughs> you know. Yeah. You know, great. But uh, l let's do that in a way where we're not getting in the way of maybe other groups that are trying to lower the cost by maybe having a volunteer structure. And then the other pushback I give a little bit is, well, what, what's going on in the rest of the world? And what's their system there? And you know, I think there was a time when we didn't have as many coaches or individuals coming up who had that background. Right. And we're getting more and more of that now. So whereas maybe in the 90s, there was more of a need for a larger number of coaches, let's say, uh, you know, paid coaches, if you want to say that, the youth level. Now, perhaps maybe there's still some need there, but maybe not as much need. And then how are we utilizing those paid coaches? Or where are they? I mean, I, I'd love to see something where we built up, built up a little bit more maybe at the state level, have some of those there where, again, through sponsorship and, frankly, other subsidy of some sort, where now you have a, sort of an elite system. Because what we don't have right now in Iowa is we do not have, we don't have a developmental academy. We don't have that one sort of elite team, right? Or that, or I say elite team at an age group or that elite organization where the best players are all coming together. And I think part of the reason for that is due to the fact that we have these sort of competing clubs and they're all charging a certain amount. Now if there's, a, again, a way for this to maybe be done through the state or if maybe with a professional team, if they start their own academy and now that cost goes way down, uh, you know, then I think you'd find those players all coming together. And as soon as we get all those top players coming together, 
from, you know, Sporting Iowa and from, you know, from VSA and from Rush and from Jayhawk and all that. And again, we all see that as a positive thing that they're coming together. Then I, those players are going to improve that much. Now, of course, now we're talking about the sort of the elite players. Yeah. And there are a lot of other players, a vast majority of them, that we really care about as well, uh, obviously. But I'm just talking, sort of focusing on sort of that elite level at this point. And so that's where I see probably the biggest shortfall, and that's part of the reason, again, why I don't believe we've really produced those elite players, not only in Des Moines, but throughout the country. So I say, look to, hey, look to other countries. You know, how are they doing it? And if they're having success, why aren't we modeling after them? Mm. Do you think that the ODP facilitates that? I think it could. You know, I think it definitely could facilitate that. I think in Iowa, it has the potential to do that. Maybe, again, more so is looking at states like Iowa, where we don't have that DA. Mm-hmm. And we just don't. I mean, it's just the reality. It's just a fact of life where we don't, we don't have that DA here. I think it's natural to maybe look at something like ODP to maybe go that direction in bringing those players together. And, you know, right now, and again, I know Ross is trying to do, he's doing good work there. Yeah, uh, I know he has some real vision there. But, you know, even with that, again, I, but there are concerns about, well, we want to be careful about not getting in the way of the club's training schedules yeah. during the season. And, and I would say, you know what, clubs, if, again, if, you're, if, if it's something where they're still with your club in an ODP, now eventually I'd love to see it maybe in Iowa where, Maybe that's their team as the ODP team. You know, that's where they're training four times a week, and that's their team. But right now, so so what if they have a, a training session week for ODP and they're missing your club practice? If that player is going to train with the best players in the area, I would think that we'd all want that. Yeah. So yeah, you know, she is most likely going to get better. So with so with the DA. Mm-hmm. Development Academy for those. Development Academy. <laughs> I always have to clarify. If it, it, you'll, the setup would be you need a full-time coach. Mm-hmm. So you'd have mm-hmm. to pay for that. So sure. it's pricey. So let's talk about Salvo. Yeah, up in Minnesota. Up in Minnesota, the cost for their DA is... Oh, man. What is it? Like $9,800. 14 flights a year. Yeah. So... So that yeah, so if I can touch on this, Jack. Uh, so uh, we talked to, or again at the coaching course, we I talked to a U.S. soccer representative, which shall remain unnamed. Um, but they were saying uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, one it, you should go to. It doesn't necessarily make sense to go to a DA unless it's a fully funded DA. So like an MLS one. So around here, Minnesota United starting to kind of get there. And then Sporting Kansas City is the the obvious, you know, uh, kind of uh, zenith of the the DA with with all their resources and connections. They've done a really good job. Shout out Nathan Hunt, Mm -hmm. DOC of the affiliates. Future guest. Future guest. No, but but I think that that's what you're alluding to a little bit, Matt, of they have the resources. Like they have the resources to – you know, dive into maybe underserved or, or overlooked uh, demographic areas where they can go, hey, you know, we have all this money from our, you know, 
first team that we can trickle down here. And you know, if you're a player from Iowa, you, we can get you a host family. You can go to, uh, you know, you can attend a high school here. Um, and then I know for the older boys, even at, um, I think they go to the, the the players that are in the system and they sign a homegrown contract and they play for that Swope Park as their second team. Mm-hmm. They even uh, give them a scholarship to uh, Emporia State. Uh, and so they, they uh, like an online thing, I believe, or maybe a duel because it's in Kansas. But they, uh, yeah, they they bridge that gap and they they give them that college education as well. But they also fully fund their soccer journey. Um, and so I think what yeah, your point is like, okay, so if we have those opportunities, obviously we don't have that in Des Moines, which is a huge, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a huge factor. And then so we see maybe more so of even. Uh, the the effects of the pay to play system across the board, right? I, I'm sure you would through sponsorships and everything. You would love to be free. You would love to offer Jayhawk, you know, for free. But it's, you know, the current climate in Iowa doesn't allow you to do that, unfortunately, right? Um, so I think it's a, a huge factor in the culture of of Iowa, especially. And and what are the ramifications a little bit if you do look at that full time model and like. Do you really want to do it, or and what does it really, really cost? Like, like you said, it was Salvo. It's like ninety hundred. Oh well, that includes flights. That includes it's like ninety eight hundred dollars. Ninety eight hundred dollars. Like the problem here too is geography. Yes, it's so big. Yeah. If you're a part of a DA, you're sanctioned to play in DA events, and you can really only play DA teams unless you're a part of a pooling of tournaments and things yeah. like that, playing against other clubs. But if you're a part of that elite top team you're going to have to travel you're going to have to play and it's going to cost a lot of money so I mean and like you said the MLS academies the, the MLS team fund the MLS DA so the only way we would be able to get something like that is if we had a, did have a men's team like the men's possibly that did have a DA and they would have to fund that mm-hmm. so yeah, otherwise I think you'd need to find out some other way to get creative, and that's a lot yeah, more difficult. Sure. But I mean, I just, you know, I, I'm just not someone to say, well, we've, you know, we've never done this before, or we've always done it this way. I mean, that was one of the first things when we formed the club, and I called U.S. Soccer, and I said, hey, well, we're having these challenges, and, and, and their message was pretty much, well, this is the United States, it's just sort of the way it is. And I, I think that's the wrong answer. You know, I, I don't think that we accept... Well, this is just the way it is. I think we, you know, we, we can be creative. We can have ingenuity. Think about, all right, how can we come together and figure this out in some of these areas? Figure out, okay, well, what, how might we budget for this? If you were to put something together, if it, it would be easiest to have a professional team to do that. There's no mm-hmm. question about it. But if we don't, does it not make sense for these clubs to sort of come together and have some talks about this with the state and say, you know what, this is what's best if we're ever going to develop elite players in Des Moines. Because it'd be difficult to be honest with a player right now and say that you can stay in Des Moines right now and you have potential to be a professional player. Yeah. I mean, that's really tough to have, to be honest with a player and say, oh, you have a dream of being professional. Yeah, you can still do that through our club here in Des Moines. I mean, I think you really have to question it. I hate to say it, but I just think that's a reality. Again, looking back at the number, you know, what I mentioned earlier, yeah. but yet look how big Des Moines is. And, and you know, people make excuses about, oh, there are all these other sports. And 
That's true. Yeah, there are a lot of other sports in the United States, but come on. I mean, Des Moines Air Metro is what, like 700,000 now? There is no reason why we cannot be, you know, that we should should not be producing more elite players. Mm -hmm. Jack, how big is uh, Wickham? My hometown? Oh my gosh. Like 400,000? Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know it was that big. I was, I was hoping for like 10,000 and maybe more, I, could make okay. a, I could make a really good point. So where I live, where I used to live, it's kind of like the one and then it has inner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other villages and towns. West Wickham? Yeah. Yeah, West Wickham, don't go there. Oh, oh. oh. <laughs> don't go there. That's like North Chicago. Don't okay. go there. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Um, um, awesome, Matt. So I think we've uh, pretty much touched on everything we wanted to touch on. Um, as far as... Now Matt Reams calling. Let's ignore it. We're just ignoring. Um, let's talk about the last thing. A couple of things that you think that we should implement from other countries. Kind of those main things that we should implement. As far as style of play, as far as pay to play, or right. anything that you, you think that we should implement. Yeah, I, I think going back to, this is something I know... Uh, you know, Jurgen Klinsmann got a lot of, you know, you go talking about our German here, got a lot of criticism at times. But you go back to, you know, 2010 when he was commentator talking about the World Cup at that time. Uh, he was a commentator for ESPN. And I just vividly recall saying, you know, the, our first touch just isn't good enough. Mm. And uh, I just think that's something that, you know, use, there's some things, again, back to the technical. I think that's if we need to focus on anything, my opinion, it's it's the technical level of our players, and it, it is down to that first touch. It's it's down to how many of our how many of our players are able to use their weak foot. I mean, really use their weak foot. And I go to a lot of games where I'll see some fairly high level seventeen games or whatever, and you see that player get on their weak side, and they have to cut it. That's, yeah. You know, we got some issues if, if that's happening. So I, I would say that that. Really being disciplined as a system in the United States to focus on those technical areas that aren't always the most exciting areas. And I'm sure you guys have had trainings where you've worked with your players on some of these and they just, you know, it's like pulling teeth. They don't want to do it, but then as you do it over time, you see that development. So that's something that I think is a as a system that we need to do throughout the United States is really have emphasis. On, on these technical areas to improve there, and then and then also be more thoughtful as a system of well, what are we doing around the country? Is you know I've heard discussion here about centers of excellence. You know what are we doing? I know there's some clubs that sort of have you know call it that or centers of excellence, but why as a system do we not have something like that for those young players coming up where they're being again pulled away from their clubs? They're going to a center of excellence that likely has some staff that's from, let's say, the state or some, someone else, some other entity, whether it's U.S. soccer, Iowa soccer, whoever that might be. But being more intentional about setting up a system like that for development because I just don't see it. I mean, I think there's been that emphasis on the DAs. You've seen that. ODP, it sort of comes and goes. Well, is there should we put emphasis there? Should we not? Our country, but uh, just being consistent across the country with what we're doing, I, I don't see it yet. Sure. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Anything else we need, John? 
No, I think it was really good. I think, yeah, I think a lot of good points. And I think, like you said, the the more we can discuss and maybe hopefully have, um, you know, more people involved with the discussion. Maybe not so much, so much individual discussions, but if we can finally find a time, place, or, uh, yeah, to get everyone together or at least important uh, influencers together to kind of talk solutions or talk you know, everyone kind of says the same problems, but what are we, what are we doing? What are we actually doing about it? Yeah. Awesome. Uh, is there anything you wanted to touch on that? that no, get to I, I think you're spot on there. I think you're spot on with that. And I think that we just need to put each of our egos aside, including, including my own, you know, put it aside and say, Hey, well, we, we've got, we've got some issues here. What can we do to address those issues? And, and, and some of that, again, is back to just growing the sport. What can we do to grow the sport? So not just elite players, but just across the board. You know, what can we do to grow the sport, the culture? I've, again, heard you guys talk about getting your players to watch games. I mean, they need to watch games, and that's back to the culture. We need, we need more young people who are watching the game. And so they're learning early on some of those sort of common do's and don'ts and seeing great play, and they know what it looks like, so it makes more more sense to them. You know, we need more of that. I mean, my son, Rockney, and I will watch, and we'll sort of get a kick out of it because we'll watch an MLS game, and then you'll you'll hear the, the fans, you you'll hear the fans, like, cheer on something where, you know, in the Premier League, the fans would be, like, booing and whistling at them, right? You know? <laughs> There's something, someone does something, they'll do a fancy footwork, and then they'll lose the ball. Yeah, and they'll say, oh, yeah. you know, it's like, it's a great thing. And whereas, uh, you know, in the Premier League, you watch one of those games, and the fans see see someone switch fields in such a way, uh, you know, quickly, and, and make that, you know, a, a great pass over the other side of the field where they can see something building up there, and the fans are clapping, right? Yeah. And we're not there yet as a country as far as sort of that development of our knowledge of the game. So I think the more we can do with the culture, hopefully again with Des Moines, hopefully here soon have a professional team, then people around the Des Moines area anyway will be able to get that. I would say too that I'm thrilled about that we have more people, uh, you know, more communities in the Des Moines area now that are so- soccer culture oriented communities. Yeah. And that's something we didn't have growing up in the 80s. We didn't have that. Uh, we just didn't. Yeah. And so it's neat to see that. It's neat to see, you know, the Bosnian community or Hispanic community, the African community, sort of fill in the blank number of others that uh, they love the sport. Yeah. And so I, I think that that's going to spill over too, and that's already having some real positive effects in the area. Totally agree. The, yeah, you see it in the club level all the time, right? It, it, whether it be, you know, immigrants or refugees, it's like coming in and it's like, oh, it's great. And it adds, like you said, a different... Uh, you know, different style or flavor, if you want to call it that. And, you know, a lot of our kids out in the suburbs maybe are, they are way more privileged than, some, than a lot where, you know, those people come from. And so they come into a training session and, you know, they, they used to do this to, to get away from, you know, some horrible things potentially. And it's like, oh man, like, oh, they're playing for a different reason than I am. Like mom signed me up and, you know, I want right. to play. And then this kid comes in and is like, this is my livelihood. It's completely yeah, different. Yeah, I mean, just to dovetail on that, I just, you know, I had a young man who started playing with me, came from an African country, and uh, came over. You know, he grew up initially playing barefoot at one time, yeah. right? And so just a, a completely different life experience. Came to the United States, now, you know, he's playing college soccer. I got a text from him, coincidentally, today. 
that he was excited that uh, you know the coach said that he might get, he's going to be getting a little extra money. He's currently Nothing. on a team, and, you know. So you know those are the things as a coach are just fulfilling yeah. uh, to have those. But you're right, you know, his life experience is a lot different than those other kids whose parents are just signing them yeah. up saying, "All right, oh, you yeah. will go to practice yeah, tonight." Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, let's end on a question from Brandon Ellis. Another fellow urban Jayhawks, Brandon. So he just says, uh, I mean, we spoke a little bit about it, sharing some un- unforeseen challenges you had um, to overcome growing a grassroots soccer program mm-hmm. and in, in what Jayhawk has become today, and just some advice that you would give to others. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, as far as the unforeseen, probably the two biggest unforeseen challenges related, I've sort of touched on them, related to the difficulty in getting affiliated. Mm-hmm. And that's the first one. that I just wasn't expecting that. Now, that's been corrected. You know, we, we won that decision. Now, like the United Football Academy is a great example. Mm-hmm. They, they applied to Iowa soccer, and I think within a week last year, they got approved. You know, so that's one of those barriers that we faced that hopefully, partly through the work of our volunteers, helped to sort of break that down. And also, again, kudos to the folks at Iowa soccer for sort of changing that mindset. And I think they've had some, some turnover there as well, so, so good for them. But that was one unforeseen challenge. And then the other one relates to the fields, you know, back mm-hmm. to the public fields, where I just, have, I, I look at, you know, it's public property, we should all be about the kids from all these different clubs, there should be a way to, to go about this where kids from all these different clubs, and we're talking about public fields, are able to have access to those fields, and yeah, we have some access, but when you have 425, 430 players this season on two fields, that's tough. You know, it's a challenge. So, and that's something that I would say to that last question about challenges that others would have. Those would be some things that just be aware that when it comes to something like that, yeah, are you going, you're sort of going against the grain a little bit. And whenever you go against the grain or you go against a power structure, uh, some, some groups have already been placed, you can get some pushback at times. Uh, and so, you know, again, hopefully we can sort of all grow and move past that and work more collaboratively and cooperatively together as we move forward. Yeah. Awesome. And nothing else for yeah, me. So thank it was you, awesome. Brandon Ermels. Thank you, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. Perfect. Anyone else? All yeah. good. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Matt. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening, guys.